and you know I don't know I don't think of myself as someone who's like harsh or um, or severe in my questioning and I don't think you need to be I think it's more that you need to demonstrate in your tone confidence and confidence that you understand the materials and that you're not going to be pushed around by the witness. That was Eva Krajewska. Eva is an accomplished civil litigator with the law firm Hen Hutchinson Robitaille LLP. She most recently got to cross-examine none other than the Prime Minister of Canada at the Emergency Act Commission, which can be seen on YouTube and is a really interesting masterclass on how to properly conduct a cross-examination, especially as it relates to high-profile witnesses. In this podcast, we go through the mechanics of that, as well as other advice that I'm sure our listeners will find helpful, including job interviews, what she does for fun outside of court, and some other tips that will help you understand what it takes to become an effective litigator. On this episode of Up Counsel, all rise. So on a scale of one to a hundred, how surreal was the moment when you said, good afternoon, Prime Minister. My name is Eva Krajewska, and I'm counsel for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. It, it, uh, it did feel surreal, but kind of, as you know, when you're in that moment, you can't think that, right? Oh. You have to just be like, I am here, and I have to... I have to do my job. Looking back on it, I'm like, yeah, that's that was pretty surreal. For sure. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, did it feel perhaps like a different witness than what you were used to? Because I'm sure you've examined hundreds, if not thousands of witnesses. But, but at that moment, were you just so caught up in the examination that you didn't really put your mind to it? Yeah, I mean, it's all of the... All of the ministers, you kind of know them from their public-facing press conferences, and you have a certain sense of them. But they all, witnesses behave differently on the stand than when they're speaking to the public. Even I think the prime minister, Moni people said that the way he responded to questions is very different than the way he answers the press or makes speeches. And so you do like you get a sense of what they're going to be, but you don't really know until you're until you're up there. And I had to be. Uh, and Marie gave me this advice. She said you have to examine him just as if he were any regular witness. If you examine him as if he is a very important person, it's going to undermine your ability to examine him properly. Well, it certainly came across that way, and and the sentiment that I got from people that I spoke to watching this, I think the overwhelming response was just how um, good, and and let me break that down, good your cross-examination was, but how professional it was, how much it looked like a proper cross-examination, and it wasn't, um, you know, as you might be tempted to get into the theatrics or become overwhelmed with who this person is. It just looked like a good cross-examination in a courtroom. And if we were to go into a courtroom and watch Ella do another witness, do you think it would change much? Or is that typically how it goes? That's typically how it would go. I am not the theatrical lawyer. (laughs) So let me ask you, you know, and for those who perhaps don't know what we're talking about, have been um, ignoring all 
media for the past two years. Maybe they've been living in the room or something. We're talking about the cross-examination um, of, of Eva uh, and Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau. Um, and this um, cross-examination can be found by going to the uh, publicorderemergencycommission.ca and in there you'll find the transcript of the hearing, the public, the public hearing itself, and this masterful cross-examination. And I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but what I took from this and why I say it was masterful is it seemed to me very clear that you had a purpose to what you were doing. And if that's true, A, what was the purpose and how important to you is purpose and cross-examination and, and, and breaking that down into how you apply that into a cross-examination? Right. So <clears throat> purpose is extremely important in a cross-examination, both the purpose of the entire cross-examination and then the purpose of each of your questions and each of your chapters, kind of I follow the Posner recipe. And so... The prime minister was the last witness of the fact section of the commission's hearings. So he was every, like we, ha we have had evidence for six weeks now. And so most of the evidence that he was going to give was probably stuff that the commissioner and people who had been watching for six weeks would have already heard. I don't think anybody was expecting that the prime minister would say something new. But my purpose going in was acting for the CCLA, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I felt that many members of the public and maybe even many members of the media maybe would not have watched six weeks of hearing. <laughs> and but would watch the prime minister, would watch the prime minister. And so one purpose for me was, uh, the purpose was educating the public about what happened and specifically the chronology of events and helping everybody kind of summarize or understand what happened that led to the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. So this was not going to be new evidence, but it was maybe going to be something that people watched and could understand. Um, so the one purpose was for sure educating the public and highlighting kind of the important steps that led to the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And then another purpose was hopefully getting some helpful admissions that we wanted with respect to the legal framework um, that led to the Emergencies Act. And we'll get there at like one, of, like one of my last questions was one of those important admissions that we needed. But going back to your, your, your question, purpose is so important on a cross and it's so important to be disciplined about that. And so you have the kind of general purpose, and we, we know we talked a lot about this internally. What is the purpose of this cross-examination? And then every kind of, every page, what is the purpose of these questions? What am I trying to get at? And once I got that, move on, <laughs> right. right? Like very, you have to be very disciplined, and sometimes, you know, where people run into problems is they ask questions 
that are open-ended or hoping to get something and seeing where it goes. But like, you really have to plan it. You really have to plan it out. It does require a lot of discipline and it requires sometimes somebody else reading your, your script and saying, what are you trying to do there? Cause I don't like, what are you trying, like, why is that there? Is that just like ever curiosity? Like, the, you know, that's my trap. My trap is like, oh, maybe I'm just curious about the <laughs> subject. Like, no, no, no. That's for civil litigation. That's for discovery. Your curiosity can, you know, that's a different, something different. That's not cross-examination. Right. I think that's so insightful. And I, and I, I think it's very helpful for younger lawyers because a mistake I often see is the mentality of torch, torch the fields discredit everybody, especially in criminal defense law. The idea is if we can just discredit every witness, we we can win. And what I saw from your cross-examination with Prime Minister Trudeau, and it's so uh, interesting to say this because I thought that is exactly what I'm getting from this, is summary of evidence that I've already known about or read in the news, but almost a, a perfect summation and like you say a couple key admissions from the prime minister himself on what was happening here from a civil liberties point of view so when you have that purpose you can always rally back and a, a, an example of this might be in practice is someone will say well i've got these 50 impeachments but if the purpose is actually to get one admission that you know you can get why would you destroy their credibility and so um, that came across very clear that this was a perhaps 20-minute window into a cross-examination, perhaps the only cross-examination that people will watch, which is, again, very different from perhaps a cross-examination that would take place outside of a public forum because you knew, of course, that this would be going on the TV. So I, I was really impressed with that, and, and it was very clear that you would define that that purpose. So then taking that a little bit further, what strategies do you employ when, when you have this clearly defined purpose in your mind, but in such a complex way where you have to deliver that through questions, um, how do you take essentially a massive forest and, and whittle it down to the two or three trees that you want to present? Well, I think I, <clears throat> I think you have to start with the purpose, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's a. It starts up for me at least. Maybe it starts off a bit disorganized. I have like I have ideas. Like I like I jot down like what are my what are my goals? So like this, 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 and this, and then I will write out a set of questions for each goal, and then that may inspire me to write out other questions, and then it'll. You know, and then I think what's really important is don't be stuck to your original framework or structure. You may have to, you have, may have to move it around and there may be things that you're going to eliminate. And the thing about the commission is we were always in the position of cross-examining. And so the commission counsel would do a very long examination in chief. And during that examination in chief, they would get certain admissions. And so I'd be with my paper, they're like crossing out that page, moving that page, <laughs> like posting notes to other places. But so like for Prime Minister Trudeau, I had this chronology and originally I did not have that chronology at the beginning of my script. I had it later on in my script because I wanted to do something else at the beginning. And Danielle Robitaille, one of my partners, I sent her my script over and she said, I think you should do the chronology first. 
And I was like, oh, but it doesn't fit with this other thing I want to do. And I'm like, are you sure? And like, we debated it. We talked about it. And, I, and she was like, do the chrono first because it'll be easy for him to follow and it'll be easy for you to get into a rhythm. Right. And that was so such good advice because it was true. It was. And, it was and true. I, it was very effective because even listening to it, even for the listener, because of course that was part of the purpose is the public is listening to this. For someone who's just jumping into the commission, it was easy for uh, a listener to quickly appreciate what this is about, what has happened to date. And I think it was also very effective to put up some fences for Prime Minister Trudeau of what this is about and, and getting that objective. And we've, we've heard that a lot in other advocates in the podcast talking about that sort of point for first advocacy. And that chronology was a really cool tool that I'm definitely going to steal from you, I have to say. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> At some point um, uh, to present to a witness, okay, just so you and I know this is what this is about. And it also to the, whether it's a trier fact or the public, it's very clear to them what's going on. So yeah, you you and Danielle really hit the nail on the head with that one. That was that was really good, but that was something um, that you had developed even prior. So you decided to move that um, around. How would it have looked if if you didn't make those modifications? I would have started with like I think more of the legal structure, and then moved on to the chronology. And I I think this is it worked. It and I mean facts start before law often, so it worked a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that um, really stood out to me, especially in comparison to some of the other uh, things that we saw in the commission, but also advocacy I've seen in general, is your tone. Um, and it's hard to describe tone, but the tone was one that was very professional, um, uncompromising, and and one that uh, was direct, uh, clear. And do you think that tone has any impact on the ability to extract questions or answers from questions of, of witnesses. I think, I think it does. I think, I think it, it does for sure. And I think some, and you know, I don't know, I don't think of myself as someone who's like harsh or, um, or severe in my questioning. And I don't think you need to be, I think it's more that you need to demonstrate in your tone confidence and confidence that you understand the materials and that you're not going to be pushed around by the witness. And, you know, often, whether it's fact witnesses, but especially expert witnesses, they are, they have immense knowledge of facts and background. And we have to acquire that similar knowledge and also convince them that we know it as well as they do, <laughs> right. right? So a lot of it, a lot of the tone, I think, is really about communicating confidence and communicating to the witness that they need to respond. I think there's a huge tendency on the behalf of witnesses to just nod or like go, mm-hmm, and you have to say like, yes, correct. Like you have to prompt them to agree with you and I think that's also something that you need to do through your confidence and, and your tone. And this is a, a basic question, but a lot of people listening to the podcast um, are law students and they don't know these sorts of things. How would you respond to a witness who 
either just nods or says mm-hmm a lot how would you reset the tone on that i think i think that you know the the, the first time you can do it very much like this is being transcribed the person who's transcribing it needs to get an audible answer from you so if you could please say yes or correct or no in response to my questions that is helpful because otherwise nothing will be recorded and once they understand that they're like oh okay like i don't think it's about chastising them i think it's about educating them about the process one thing I noticed, um, and this is perhaps, um, uh, you know, every cross-examiner has their own style. And um, how hard was it to find your style? Uh, how did you find your style? Is it something that came natural to you or is it something that you worked on to, to see what we saw in the commission? I think it's something that you work on over time and with experience. Um, I Because... Th- I think for for all of us, it's easier to be confident if you feel like you're being authentic, if you feel like you're being your true self in the in the in the way you're asking the questions. And so I think especially as a young as a young woman lawyer, you know, I think there's a tendency to be you know, you either are too deferential or you're too aggressive. Like you just can't find yourself. And it's not it's not natural to ask questions in a cross-examination, right? It's not natural at all. So it just takes time practicing asking questions and getting that sense of, of how to do it. But a lot of it is just really knowing the materials, knowing the evidence, and being able to convey to the witness like, my questions are really good questions. I have all the backup and you're going to cooperate. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So what would you say um, to um, the, the Eva that is about to cross-examine her first witness and now you come back in time and say, okay, here, I've got three tips for you. What would you tell her? I, I, would, like, I think I would tell her first, like, don't be afraid um don't back down if you don't get the answer you originally wanted and i think most significantly and this is maybe very specific to civil litigation where a lot of the examinations that we do are outside of the courtroom a lot of them are in um a lot of them are in court reporting offices or now on zoom is do not let the psychological games that counsel for the other side plays ever get to you. So, you know, so for example, it's just very sometimes subtle or small things. You know, uh, some counsel will object to questions to throw you off your game. Like, oh, that, that was a compound question or can you rephrase that question or can you put the document to the witness this way? Like they will, they will interrupt you. And it's just very important to um, just really ignore that. And sometimes for the record, just say like, I'm going to put my questions on the record. Something else that I think is really important is sometimes really bad counsel on the other side will refuse questions, will say refused, irrelevant, mm-hmm. refused, irrelevant. And that'll lead you to think, 
oh my God, my whole page of questions here is irrelevant. I'm going to just move on. Like, do not do that. Put all of your questions on the record. Just say, I hear your objections. I'm going to put my questions on the record and just keep asking the questions. Like a lot of it is just, you have to, you have to push through. Mm -hmm. See, we don't have the experience in, in criminal. I mean, we do occasionally um, have discoveries, but for the most part, we have a judge there who can put an end to the nonsense. And I, I'm totally, you know, it's totally foreign to me, the idea that another lawyer can just shut down questions, but that's some really helpful advice. Um, one thing I noticed as well in your cross-examination, which again, I found quite effective, is um, you were sort of hitting um, every uh, question with correct. And I'll use an example. So um, the question is, and then you meet with cabinet the evening of the 13th, correct, Prime Minister Trudeau, yes. And at that time, cabinet delegates to you the ultimate decision, delegates to you the ultimate decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. And Clerk Charette characterized this as left it at referendum to the prime minister. Correct. Answer, yes. And you consult with the caucus the morning of the 14th. Correct. Yes. Why is it that you're adding that correct to it? What do you think it achieves? Uh, I think I just, I really... Um, I think it was really kind of a prompt to get him to say yes, because I could tell that he was like nodding as I was asking the question. And I'm just like, I need, I, I need you to verbalize it. It's <laughs> just kind of like, just give me the, give me the yes. Give me the yes. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's a little, it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of that. And I guess this is what like, you know, some people in cross-examination schools talk about like training the witness, like just getting them into that habit of responding with an affirmative. And so it's, it's a, it's a little bit of that, but it's, I think it really, you have to kind of adapt your, what you're doing depending on the witness. And here I could just tell that he wanted to say yes. So I just wanted him to verbalize it. <laughs> and what works. Yeah. It, it, it's almost like you were just telling him, look, uh, I know what the facts are and I just need you to make sure you agree with me. And it was this, you know, sort of everyone, a punctuation of yes. Um, and I, again, to those listening, I think that really, it shows um, an effective cross-examination is you either know what the witnesses are going to say or you don't really care. You're going to state what the facts are. And it's only when they want to fight you on that does it get, I guess, ramped up. So what, what would have happened, let's say, in another commission? What if he had said, um, and, and you left it at the referendum to the prime minister, correct? And he started to say, well, it was kind of like that, but there was a lot of discussion, and uh, I don't know. I didn't really know if I would agree with that entirely. Where do you think you would have gone at that point, knowing that you had a limited time? It's Prime Minister of Canada. He's very savvy, and as all politicians are, in answering questions, media trained. Um, what did you? What would you have in your in your um, bag of tricks to make sure that he doesn't get past you? So. For almost all of my questions, I had a reference to another piece of evidence that supported my proposition. Um, and I have that 
for, I guess, a few reasons. The first is I have that so to know that my, my question is correct. Like you never want to be accused by another counsel that you are misrepresenting the previous evidence. So I have that to make sure my question is correct. I have it there uh, to also take the prime minister to if he disagrees. So if he said, no, that's not how I remember it, I would say, you know, Mr. Registrar, could you please pull up the transcript of Clerk Charette's testimony? And, you know, and you, like, this is what she said. And so, you know, but I think a lot of it is because I know I have it, because I know I have that evidence, um, it builds my confidence that when I say it to him, he is hopefully a little bit afraid to disagree with me about it, right? Like right. he hopefully knows that if he disagrees with me, I'm going to show him that he's wrong, right? Now, I only had 15 minutes. Like the commission was very, uh, I only had 15 minutes. If the I was ready to take the prime minister to another piece of evidence if he disagreed with me for almost all of my questions, but if I had had to do that, I would have been in huge trouble time-wise. Right, and then I would we have go been back huge to the purpose, time -wise. right? Yeah, and then I would have had to, like hopefully if, if that happened a few times, once or twice, where he disagreed with me and I showed him that he was wrong, hopefully after that he would stop disagreeing with me, right? Like that's the hope. Right. But it would have, it would have derailed my whole timeline if that's what I had to do. But I was ready to do that. You have right. to be ready for that. You have to be ready. And then I suppose in a way, the purpose would then shift from, okay, I thought you were going to agree with what the facts are, but what is now happening is you refuse to, and therefore this is going to turn into, to your own demise, impeachments. And that's not going to look good for you from a political point of view. And I, I obviously, you, took that into consideration when preparing your cross that he wouldn't want to expose himself. No, and I, I didn't expect that he would disagree with the clerk of the Privy Council, right? Like, you you have to assume that he's going to agree with the clerk of the Privy Council or agree with what his other ministers have said, right? He's not going to openly disagree with them. Right. At, at one point, what was really interesting is there was a point where... Um, you refuse to engage in what I'd characterize as sort of a small disagreement. Um, and I'll read the transcript is you say, right. And we heard evidence from commissioner lucky of the RCMP that she had signed off on a plan to enforce and remove the protesters in Ottawa on February 13th. And she had confidence in it. She and the OPP and the OPS had confidence in, did you hear that testimony? Prime minister Trudeau? No, I disagree with that. Um, Eva, okay, you disagree with that. Yes, I do not believe that the plan was either signed off on supposedly by the RCMP or presented by the OPS on the 13th was in any real regards an actual plan for clearing the protests. And you say, and is this a plan that you saw or that you were spoken to about? I was spoken to about. I did not see it myself. So why didn't you engage there and... Um, because I suppose you could have, but you know, it seemed like you were already getting a lot of admissions and I'm curious why you left that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, um, so the commission had already heard a lot of evidence previously from commissioner lucky and from minister Mendocino about this 
police plan that uh, that Brenda Lucky had been briefed on on February 13th. So there was already a lot of evidence on that. And uh, the prime minister, you know, says, well, he didn't think this was a good plan. And this is an issue that I kind of wanted to set up for cross, but more for other parties at the commission who are much more interested in this issue. So I was very happy to kind of highlight it um, because what was important to the CCLA was that there, you know, the evidence I think actually went into the commission that there was a plan. And the problem was that actually the commissioner of the RCMP hadn't told cabinet about it. And so I'm not surprised that the prime minister is saying, well, I didn't, you know, this was, this was not a plan. I didn't know about it, but there were other parties to the commission that were much more interested in this issue than the CCLA was. So I was happy to kind of set it up, you know, (laughs) Um, and, you know, kind of, I guess in sports analogies, do a little assist, but somebody else could like score the goal on it later. Right. It's kind of one of those questions where you, you don't really care what he has to say, because if he said he knew about it, great. But if not, then the purpose there is almost a sub purpose of I'm going to deal with this later. And for those interested, it just kind of looks like, well, he wasn't very informed. That would be the quick impression. And for those that are really, really interested, would they would then listen to the follow-up questions or follow-up testimony to see where is this going? Right. Yeah, no, that was, that was really interesting. So what stands out to you as the most memorable part of that entire process of the commission? I, I know you've had, you know, so many wonderful things, but, um, to talk about in advocacy, but, this is the one we're on right now, and it's certainly one that's fresh in everyone's mind. And I, I'm curious, um, when you <laughs> left Ottawa, what, what did you think? Wow, that was really neat. Well, I, I mean, it was, I think it, it's a bit of an extraordinary experience in, in many respects. Um, first of all, so the, the timelines under which the commission is working are extraordinary. They're mandated by the legislation. So the commission has to produce a report by February 20th. It's 300, it has to produce a report within 360 days of the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And that legislation was drafted in the 1980s. So I always joke that they drafted this legislation before email and, and text messages and everything else, right? Like the record or the documents would have been like maybe a folder, right? right we had, right. we had tens of thousands of documents. Yeah. Um, and so there is a huge amount of documentary production, huge amount of transparency into how the government came to the decision that it came to. Uh, you're working, you know, commission council had over 30 lawyers on their team. The attorney general had about 30 lawyers on their team. You, we had, you know, multiple parties, whether it's civil liberties organizations, police services, the city of Ottawa, the city of Windsor, so many parties all doing, you know, enormous, an enormous amount of work in a span of six weeks of hearings. So I think it is kind of extraordinary in that way. And I would commend kind of the amount of collegiality and civility that existed amongst the council who are there in Ottawa or appearing via Zoom. Um, you know, there we spent a lot of time together and there was a lot of kind of 
informal cooperation. Oh, you know, can I have some of your, we had so little time with some witnesses. Can I have some of your time? Or I give my time to this person. Or can you review these documents? I'll review those documents. Um, so I think it is kind of extraordinary. And I, I, you know, I think it's a, it's also an extraordinary process for the public because of the amount of information that was given publicly and how all of it was streamed and made available to the public across Canada, which I think mm -hmm. is also quite significant. What, what do you hope that the public um, who were interested in this took from the entire proceeding? I mean, I think they, I, I mean, I think there's, I think, you know, you don't often see um, how government decisions are made, right? You don't often see that, that process and, um, and what inputs they get to making those determinations and how the public service supports the ministers and the politicians in coming to decisions. And here you really got much more of a sense of that. You also got a lot more sense of the relationship between the federal government and the provinces and the and the parties, you know, you, I think what's some, sometimes so, um, what the public doesn't like about politics is how snippy politicians can be what, with one, each, one another publicly. Right. But, you know, if you look at the exchanges of emails from, for example, between Prime Minister Trudeau and the leader of the opposition at that time, Candace Bergen, or their readouts of their telephone conversations, they're very civil, they're very understanding, or the readout of the call between the prime minister and all the first ministers across the country where he consulted with them about the invocation of the Emergencies Act. It's very civil, they provide, they speak to him, you know, very practically and they share with him their perspective, you know, I think, and then the problem is, I think sometimes all of those people, the politicians come out and speak publicly and they're all, they just all, you know, they all give it to each other, right? Right. And, but that's not how they really speak to each other. Yeah, and, it's so interesting. And it's so interesting, right? Yeah. Like there, I think there's actually so much more cooperation and civility underneath it all. And then there's this kind of public performance. It's too bad that that's lost because I think, um, the public would have a lot more confidence in our political system if they could see what is really happening, that people are acting in good faith and everyone's doing their best and really just going going to work for the day and everyone's trying to, to do their job well. But all we see is what's going to make the headlines of the Star or the National Post or the Globe and Mail. You know? And I think, unfortunately, the way... Uh, I'm not faulting media, it's just time spans and news cycles, you're only left with one headline. So if you have someone making some incendiary comment, that's what's going to get reported rather than a long, drawn-out, rational, right? Even as concise as your cross-examination was, how do you reduce that to just a story, right? You right. can't. You can't. Right. Yeah. Um, what was most disappointing about this commission from your perspective? Oh, maybe I'll reserve that judgment okay. until oh, the right. report comes sure, out. Sure, yeah, all right. That's fair. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the civil civil rights is obviously extremely important to you. You're highly involved with the CCLA. What is your role with the CCLA? So I'm just, um, I've been retained by the CCLA over the years on a number of matters as an external counsel. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so I've done interventions for them um, at different levels of court. And then I was, so on the Emergencies Act, I've been counsel to them on the judicial review application of the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. That's going to be heard by the federal court um, in the spring and then and then counsel to them along with Kara Zwiebo, who's a lawyer with the CCLA at the commission. What would you say to younger lawyers who are thinking of getting involved in something like the CCLA, whether it's CCLA or a different type of uh, organization? How important has that been in your career or advancement as an advocate? I, I think it's a tremendous opportunity if people, if young lawyers are passionate about different areas of law and doing advocacy. I mean, a lot of the time or most of the time, this type of work is, is pro bono. Um, but it is an opportunity to get on your feet and, and advocate on issues that are important to you that maybe you wouldn't you wouldn't otherwise get the benefit of doing like you know it's i think it's very hard for young lawyers to be counsel at the supreme court of canada for a party but for an intervener like that's that's definitely a possibility and you get to you know you get to, you get the thrill of doing that right right yeah, yeah it's it's hard to imagine where you'd get other opportunities like that um so i guess that would be the sell to the senior partner of why they should be doing some pro bono work yeah and i think it's i think i think it you know for a lot of lawyers sometimes it just feeds their soul you know it, is, it allows them to do cases that they would normally not do and it also puts them in the role of like a first chair on things and they have to think on their feet and and figure it out yeah so on the topic of um young lawyers um i'm here with jacob roth my co-host and i know he had a couple questions um more focused on people just getting into the practice not necessarily young but just getting into the area of law um jacob what was the question you had earlier well i know eva you sat on many hiring committees for young lawyers uh, particularly those coming out of law school other than getting good grades and having compelling extracurriculars, what are some things you might recommend to those young lawyers looking for their first job in the industry? In terms of when they're and when they're when they're doing the interviews and stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, it's going to sound really pedestrian, but I'm going to say be prepared. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's. I, I think we used to treat lawyer interviews as a lot more of like this funny fit game, but I think what is it funny fit like a fit game? Oh, you know, I think I especially if if you're applying to civil litigation on Bay Street, a lot of the interviews were not really substantive, but very much more like you know what do you do for fun and oh, right. you know all this kind of stuff and trying to get a sense of a person of whether they'd be the right fit for the firm. And I think we've all recognized that that is not a good way of hiring people, and it just means you end up hiring people that are a lot like you, which is not not very good for the diversity of the profession. Uh, but I think, so I think now I think we recognize that questions are gonna, we're gonna have much more, maybe not legally substantive questions, but questions that we ask young lawyers in interviews are a lot like, why do you want to come to Hen and Hutchison Rubitai, right? Like, like, what is it about this firm that attracts you? 
you know, why did you go to law school? Um, what are you interested? What are you interested in doing? You know, tell us about a time where something was hard or you overcame a challenge. Right? I think we've come to trying to really probe people's motivations a lot more and trying to understand uh, kind of both their intellectual capacity and their um, their you know a little bit about whether they have grit right like a little bit of like you know being a lawyer is is hard and you know have you faced challenges in your life where you've had to do hard things before and how how have you overcome those I think that's that's really important. So I think preparing for interviews and preparing now for like real interview questions is a lot more important than it used to be. Is getting out of that practice of asking people about their interests or determining whether you'd want to have a beer with them. And I'm happy that firms didn't ask me that because I'm supremely boring and I don't drink beer. <laughs> but is that a practice that you think is is one that only you've been part of or are firms largely following suit it's really hard for me to say right firms don't often share these details and a lot of the big firms the the high, the interview process because you have so many lawyers involved in it becomes very diffuse and so you really have to try to get everybody on board on the same page of like this is how we're going to do our interviews now right we're not we're not going to be asking people about their interests anymore and we're going to be actually probing them for like specific aptitudes um which i mean i think is hope you know i think is much more also respectful to to students because they feel like they're being judged based on what they've done instead of where they've been mm -hmm. yeah it, it's interesting you use the expression grit and I, I, you've probably read the book by angela duckworth who talks a lot about that and it, it it really does sum up uh, in one word a, a really important principle, and um, let's break that down a little bit more. How important do you think grit is, and what does that mean in the context of a lawyer? Okay, so I'll just pause to say I think Angela Duckworth had a brilliant mark like idea for a book because all neurotic parents and all HR consultants will buy it, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> that's like, right. <laughs> how do I make my kids more gritty and how do I hire people who have grit? Um, I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, I think a lot, what I took away from that book is grit is about not, you know, having a certain amount of resilience, not to give up on when things are hard and pushing through like pushing through those moments and becoming a lawyer is difficult i think many young associates would say the first three years of practice are hard because you're learning a practice you're learning a way of doing things like you know you know law you know legal reasoning but now you're going to be deploying it in all these different ways Plus, you're going to be learning how to interact with clients, learning how to interact with opposing counsel, learning how to interact with judges. There's just a lot of novelty to it. And so I think grit comes into it as like you have to, I think, have a commitment that you're going to give this a try 
And you're, you're going to appreciate that there will be times when you fail or will be times where things don't go well and you're going to have to pick yourself up and try it again. And maybe after three, four years, you say, you know what? I really don't like this. I want to do something else with it. And that's totally fine. You know, I think, I think there's, there's lots of people who go from law to other, other careers. I think even when I was in law school, the statistic was that after five years, 50% of your classmates will not be practicing law. Wow. And it, that number has probably gone up. And I, I, I would never dissuade anybody who's not happy to like stay, stay in the profession. But I think when we talk about grit, I think we have to recognize and also be empathetic that it is hard at the beginning and you are going to not always succeed, but you need to be able to, uh, to have this, you know, the supports in place to be able to pick yourself up and try again. Mm -hmm. And where do you think your grit has come from? Because obviously you display that. I don't know. Maybe you like tough immigrant parents. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I think that's, that may be part well, of it. May, yeah. That may very well be a large part of it. Yeah. If not the part of it. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, everyone's tough in different ways. So how do you, if you're, you know, late night of the boardroom and, um, you've got this big cross examination of the prime minister coming up in two days. And, you know, as we've all felt that feeling of like, I just can't do this anymore. How do you either push through or reset yourself, recalibrate to get that grit that you need? Right. Yeah. Well, I think that that's a really good question. I think sometimes you do, um, you do hit a wall right? And it's important to know how to get past that. And part of that is me walking into one of my partners or colleagues' offices and being like, this is where I'm at. I need feedback. Right. Right? Like I need someone else to talk to me about this. And I need another perspective. Uh, for me, it's also like going going outside, getting a walk-in, or even doing like half an hour of some kind of something that get, gets my heart rate going again. Um, I think after that, you often feel as tired as you are. I often feel as tired as I am. After I exercise, I feel a lot better. <laughs> so I think there's a, you know, I think you do need to sometimes kind of extract yourself out of your head, uh, both physically and intellectually by getting someone else involved and also just having a bit of a reset right so who's your go-to person here in the firm well it's actually quite a few people like yeah. i go I, I go to i go to danielle and alex quite a lot yeah 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 i could see why yeah brilliant lawyers yeah um sorry i didn't mean to hijack your question there uh jacob no not at all okay who are your mentors early in your practice Oh, that's a good, okay. So that's a, that's a good. So I started my practice at BLG and I had quite a few m mentors. Um, so Chris Brett, uh, originally kind of recruited me to BLG from the Supreme Court. And, uh, he had also clerked at the Supreme Court, uh, for Justice McIntyre. And I was worried coming from clerking that I would have like no practical experience and I wanted to be at a firm that kind of understood what that meant. <laughs> and uh, because he had always done a good job of recruiting clerks, I felt confident that that would, would 
would happen. And he also always had a public law practice where he acted for interveners or he acted on public law matters. And so he was a mentor in terms of like, how do you build a public law practice in a commercial or civil litigation shop? Um, and he gave me lots of those types of opportunities, including ones where he, he was acting for the CCLA on an intervention. And he was like, I have a conflict. You argue it, <laughs> which was, <laughs> which was, uh, which was fabulous. Um, another person who's always been uh, early on in my career was fabulous was, um, Dennis O'Connor, who was the associate chief justice of Ontario. And then he rejoined BLG upon his retirement. And I, there, he, he was wonderful and is wonderful. I'm actually having lunch with him in a, in a few weeks, but he's, he is, I think everybody recognizes that he is an extraordinarily nice person. And people always told me that when he practiced, he would extract so much information out of witnesses because the witnesses liked him so much. People just wanted to tell him things. <laughs> Even when their lawyers were like, stop talking. But like people just want to talk to him about things. But he was always someone great who like I could moot in front of. I could do practice runs out of. And he would give you the best feedback and he would frame it the best way. And so he, I think he's a mentor in terms of how do you, how do you support young lawyers and how do you provide them with feedback? Yeah, that's that's some really good advice. And it's it's really neat to see sort of the tapestry of of all that coming together to where you are now, where I'm sure you were the mentor for a lot of lawyers and giving that advice. And um, when Jacob takes over this podcast and interviewing people in 20 years and I'm hopefully on a beach. I don't have the radio voice like you do. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, no one will listen. So anyway, it's, it obviously shows how important mentors are and, and how much we all, and even to this day, I very much rely on uh, mentors to try and figure out certain things. Um, so in the multiverse, if you didn't go to law school, where do you think you would be? Oh, today? that's so, you know, that is such a hard question. Uh, it can just be a wishful one. What it's would, a wish. Maybe it's a wishful one. Like, yeah. I think that kind of changes depending on where the world is at. Um, I, I may have, I may have gone into politics. I always loved politics and public policy when I was, when I was young. And I, you know, I think maybe I was more of like a polite agitator, uh, you know, like having high school friends sign petitions to like change things. And, you know, even at school that I thought was unfair. Um, so there's that. And then, you know, during the pandemic, there was a part of me that really regretted that I did not go to medical school because yeah. I just really felt like, oh my God, I really want to change things. I want to make a difference. I want to help people. So it's, yeah. I felt the same way. I, like, <laughs> I, I really like when, you know, you kind of, you almost feel hopeless or helpless. I should say like you, you have all these uh, tools as a lawyer, but you really aren't helping people get through COVID. No, no, no. Yeah. I was yeah. also the one in high school getting people to sign petitions and, Taking up causes, surprisingly, it didn't make me very popular. <laughs> well, be careful what you guys wish for, because I'm sure the prime minister is listening to this podcast right now about his cross-examination. And we both, both might get recruited to be a, a candidate. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, we often ask questions to the lawyers, guests on the podcast um, about some of the, uh, I 
I guess you could say advancement, progress, uh, evolution of law. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen for better or for worse since you started? All right. Well, it's, I think you know, when I was reflecting on that, um, I think it, it's hard not to notice or talk about the most recent changes as a result of COVID and the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Zoom attendances for non-contentious matters like case conferences, scheduling appointments, like that is great. Like it's great for clients. It's great for lawyers. I remember my first few years of practice, you know, at, at, in Toronto at the civil bar, you have something called civil practice court where to get a date for a motion, you have to go to court and tell the judge what the motion you're bringing and how much time you need. And there would be like 20 to 40 lawyers in that courtroom for like a few hours. And I would just count the number of heads and be like, well, you know, if they're like three to $400 an hour each, this is like thousands of dollars just like evaporating in this room. And so having Zoom for non-contentious matters and being able to, you know, do work on other files and then do your five to 10 minute appearance, I think is is significant. I don't think we should underestimate that. And I think the judiciary recognizes that that's something that should stay. Um, I think the stuff that I think is maybe not so good and that continues to be a problem, especially on the civil side, is um, there is a huge reluctance to go to trial on the civil side. We've become entrenched in a culture where a trial is not a normal outcome for a civil proceeding. It's almost like if you show up at a trial in a civil proceeding, it's because you were unable to settle it, which means that one or all of the parties or their counsel are unreasonable. Like it's almost like a, like a, you know, like it's almost like everybody looks at you like, what's wrong with you? Right. Right. And I think that's bad. That's bad. We have, a whole set of rules of civil procedure that are designed to get us to a trial. That's their purpose. That's like, that's the trajectory. That's the path. And yet that's not where we end up. Most cases settle. I'm not against settlement or mediation. I think that is appropriate, but I think we need to have a discussion as, as a profession as to why is it that we think mediation and settlement is so much better for certain cases? Why is it that we don't want to do a trial? And um, like, what are what should be the purpose of the rules? If the if ninety five percent of things are settling, then maybe we should have rules designed for settlement, right? Um, maybe we should have a process designed for settlement. Um, but also, I think a lot of clients. Like they want to go most like a lot of clients want to go to trial and maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's not, it doesn't always come from a, a good place, but they want a decision maker to decide who was right and who was wrong. Right. And we don't provide that. No, I think that is a great insight and I totally agree. And, and fortunately with criminal law, um, I, it's a bit easier. There's still emphasis on settlement, but in criminal law, if someone says they didn't commit a crime, and the state says they did, there's not much room for negotiation. And so we kind of recognize it. Let's just set this down for trial. Um, I, in the criminal, you see that as well. 
Um, and I think what has happened in, in both sides that making this harder to go to trial is just the aversion to make decisions. Just decide, right? And and I don't know if you found this yourself, but even people who lose um, are happy with, not, not happy, but they accept the process. They accept the decision has been made and they can move on with their lives one way or another. What What's the worst, and I explain this to clients, is the worst part is waiting. The worst part is the discussion. The worst part is the constant back and forth and why can't we just agree to this? If we just told clients, look, your trial's in four weeks, let's keep our fingers crossed, hopefully this goes well for you. I think the satisfaction of justice, even if they lose, will be a lot better. And, um, you know, it seems like that's that seems to be in the civil side as well. Yeah. Yeah. So who who are you outside of the court? Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, what do you enjoy? What feeds your soul when you're not, you know, um, cross-examining prime ministers? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have two young kids. So a huge part of the time that I'm not in the office is you know, spending time with them, making sure that they're That's where your doing grit fun comes things. from. That's where your grit I, comes I from. I guess so. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm just, you know, I, I, I am subjecting them to the same stuff that I was subjected to. Like they have to practice piano every night and, you know, oh, <laughs> yeah. all that stuff. Um, so those are my kids. But I also realized, at, you know, it's becoming a parent and being a lawyer you uh, you tend to start to focus a lot on everything that you can do for your career and your work and your clients and making sure that that's under control. And then also when you're not doing that, making sure your family and your spouse are under control. And at some point you realize there is no time left for me. Mm-hmm. And you need, like I say this to the young lawyers, especially maybe the young moms, like you need to have time for you and you need to remember what makes you tick and gives you, you know, makes you happy. Cause make, and maybe for some people, the, 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 the career and the kids will be sufficient. But I still think for most of us, there's something, there's a little bit of something else left there. And for me, I need to have a sense of adventure. I need to go on adventures. I love, you know, I love being outside. Uh, when one, you know, I, I really got into cross country skiing. Oh, wow. Uh, and like, I love to do that one weekend, one day a week and, or go on hikes, or maybe it's just going to the AGO or the gardener. Like you need to find the things that, that make you happy. But for me, it's like, I need a sense of adventure. And I like to also just plan adventures for the future. Yeah, well, that sounds great. I, and cross-country skiing, now that, talk about grit. That is a hard sport. <laughs> Holy but smokes. It, it is a hard sport. It's really hard. You feel like your heart's going to give out. But then when you get back in the car afterwards, if you've had a good cross-country ski, you just feel like you can do anything after right. that. Right, because that's past grit. That's your now into masochism. That's just like I, I okay. want to right, punish that's, that's myself. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's amazing. Good for you. So, um some closing thoughts what what is something these are just fun questions and i I, i've asked them before and i forgot how good they can be what's something you purchased in the past year that you couldn't live without now so the cross-country skis is that it yeah that's great i think so yeah yeah 
just that feeling of like, okay, now I can go accomplish anything. Yeah. And uh, one book to read. So this is a book that uh, a friend recommended and that I really like and I think is really good for civil litigators especially. It's called High Conflict by Amanda Ripley. And it's about how when when you know issues of disagreement turn into high conflict situations and how do you unwind that okay and she this is a she's a she's a journalist and she talks about it's written it's it's written by through maybe four or five kind of insights into different high conflict situations some of them are political uh, some of them are. She talks about the kind of the conflict in Colombia with the um, with the drug cartels and the guerrillas, and it's really good. It's just I think it's important for us as lawyers who deal with conflict uh, to understand the anatomy of that a little bit more. Like because you know there are people who will disagree and most of them will never hire a lawyer right? right it's only when they're really unable to deal with the conflict that they end up hiring a lawyer yeah so a follow-up question to that and i had it earlier but i think this may touch upon it um does that have anything to do with empathy because you described yourself as an empath empathic lawyer right does that have anything to do with conflict resolution yeah i think it does yeah i think it does and it's funny you know i always you know some sometimes clients come and they and they relate to you something bad that happened and i sometimes have to tell them especially the common law the common law really doesn't care about feelings right it doesn't compensate feelings it it's much more comfortable compensating pecuniary losses right and and so, like we're like the legal system, the justice system is not comfortable dealing with with feelings. <laughs> well, I I think um, that people are going to have feelings of of uh, satisfaction after hearing all of these tips and all of your thoughts on the law. Uh, thank you so much uh, for participating in the podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for yeah, having me. Thank you. Lot.